Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, Portland writer Trevino Brings Plenty is in conversation with Louise Erdrich from this year's Portland Book Festival. Trevino's work includes Wakpawanogi, Ghost River, Real Indian Junk Jewelry, and Shedding Skins, Four Sioux Poets. Louise Erdrich joined us virtually from Minneapolis for an event in front of a live audience at the Newmark Theater. She is one of our most celebrated living writers. Her novels include The Night Watchman, which won the Pulitzer Prize, The Roundhouse, which won the National Book Award for Fiction, The Classic Love Medicine, and La Rose, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. She joined us on the occasion of the publication of her most recent novel, The Sentence. Here's our moderator, Trevino Brings Plenty. Hello. Hello. I'm glad we get to uh, bi-locate here. We are in the future. I'm so excited to talk to you, Trevino. However and whatever we're we're in here. Usually I uh, stay away from conversations about the weather, but uh, you know, I I think about talking about the weather because it's pretty, uh, you know, this thing that's outside of us, these, these things that we interact with. Yeah, this, uh, I guess, in some ways, uh, engages in our moods and our perceptions of our reality around us based around weather. It does. You know, I think about it because I think that it connects with the subject of a lot of what we're talking about today, which is being haunted. And I, f- I have this sensation that we now are haunting the future. Somehow that everything we're doing will be a haunting for our future people. And it's like the title of your book, which I'm going to hold up because I really love this book. And it's a beautiful book. But, but a lot of this book is about haunting. Native people are haunted. Yeah. I guess in some ways our remembrance, our remembering is we activate our haunting um, historical material for how we orient ourselves right now. Um, and I think you might have mentioned it earlier, like even books themselves in some ways, you know, as a poet, we transfer energy from the scene we see in our lives or we experience through us to the page to the reader. And in some ways, books are haunting us as we pick them up and engage them, or at least the transfer of energy that happens in that. No, I like that, the transfer of energy. Um in the bookstore, when, when I go into the bookstore at night, I feel these, it's as though there's um, consciousness all around me. And I think that's what books do for me, at least. I feel this consciousness to consciousness sense of communication, something that's going between us. And I think that's why people are invested in books and how 
and why people are really we 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 didn't think in the beginning that we'd be able to survive Amazon, but people started turning to books because books are a source of comfort, uh, pleasure. They're something physically. I, I feel like they're the um, the epitome of the essential technology, like uh, a spoon, a fork, a knife. You know, they're a book. We invented something that is so perfect for us, and it's 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 sort of evolved to be a better and better companion. I think the trade paperback is one of the best forms of technology we have. Um, it's it's not going to break your bank if you if you drop it in the bathtub, you know. So I love I love real books. I, I think about that because there was a spike in interest in reading and physical books during the pandemic, right? Um, but that to me, that just highlights, you know, when we engage with art, we're engaging or taking back our time. A lot of our time is dedicated to work and we're trying to get enough time for ourselves or, you know, with family or extended community. And so that, to me, that spike in interest in books meant a lot of folks want to renegotiate or reassess their time that they get for themselves. I mean, we're competing with social media as well, right? So our time is, we're giving our free labor to social media that, you know, is also in competition then with the, with the book itself. But there's something about the, just the, the self-enrichment of the book itself gives to the reader that social media does something weird, but um, we're in that competition. I love how you, I love what you said, soft enrichment. Yeah. My book is also about the problem of what human, human remains, people who, who um, have no clue about the fat, about um, where, where native bones in museums and in various, um, small venues under every place there there is a knowledge a kind of general knowledge that seeps into american culture that this there's a discomfort there's a a concern there's sometimes a um a complete refusal and denial to acknowledge that this is all 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 uh, native land, and that's why the bookstore is there in a way, because that's what we can we can bring people in and talk about this, because it's kind of a painful reality, and um, oftentimes nobody knows what to do with it. Yeah, I think everyone's at different points in really understanding or coming to terms or reconciling settler colonialism in these settler states and this U.S. colonial project itself, at each point of conflict that is there that's happening in these, in these areas, folks understanding their position, the different positions between the colonized and the colonizer that is still active right now. I mean, the settler state is still active. The U.S. colonial project is still active. Colonization is alive and well. As much as we might not want admitted or even the language of it has changed. Like example is 
U.S. colonies right now, we call them territories because, you know, there's this push away from saying colonies to hide what is actually there in these relationships between the colonized and the colonizer and also what the internal colonization looks like with different communities that have been segregated through uh, the political economy itself. So these still play. And I, I think in your book, you know, with uh, it taking place during the George Floyd rebellions, you can see this struggle happening there. And you know, we, we, it is there that the class struggle is happening with different folks in impact, being impacted by capital to different aspects. Um, on top of, you know, as thinking of race itself as a way to divide up labor, that is happening, or that is happening, and that continues to happen. Uh, a lot of folks know something's wrong, but they don't have the language for it. And I think that's where the point where we have education as part of our goal and purpose to give language to what is happening right now and what has happened, of course, as a way to make adjustments. Absolutely. And, and, and language is evolving very quickly. I mean, I noticed that it evolved so quickly to encompass what was happening after George Floyd was murdered. And in, in the bookstore, I was saying that, you know, we, um, we were inundated with requests for books. Everybody who was not out in the street wanted to know why everybody else was out in the street. You know, it was, um, well, I, I think we both, or both of our cities had, have had this in common as well, that um, people can break out furiously out of red line, out of the corridors of the painful past and into this time now. And I'm afraid now what I'm afraid of and what I see because we also segued into an enormous uh, demonstration, Standing Rock-like demonstration of indigenous treaty uh, protections up on line three, which is another pipeline going, taking tar sands down from Canada over to incredibly Lake Superior, the world's, you know, our, our largest, I should say, our largest freshwater source, a source that's so phenomenal, so pure, so extraordinary that it beggars the imagination to think of running a tar sands pipeline right up to it where it can easily, it's, I mean, it, it has blown up in the past. I mean, these, these things, that are happening there was and, and what i'm getting toward is that we've seen a hardened response now a military response to dissent and we're seeing a very different sort of response taking place something that we haven't seen for a while that concerns all of us i think no, I, I think about that, you know, keeping in mind that we are in a capitalist country and it operates as such, that what would be our position if these natural resources were nationalized? Because they're owned by private companies through the state, what it may be. 
Um, it means something different if it becomes nationalized that those profits from it go back to people that need it. Um, and we think about the, the reserve army of labor, which is the unemployed or underemployed working folks that better their material conditions by redistributing wealth. You see this, and I, I envision the comic from 100 years ago where the, the worker is being pressed down by stagnant or low wages and then being pressed from underneath by landlordism. So our, our sense of actually having livability within the city have these two factors pressing in on folks from living the full potential they, ha they can have, what it actually means to, be, to live or work towards liberation. And liberation, I'm working from the definition of uh, free from oppression. And so those two economic factors limit uh, our ability to have the full life that we can have, that we can have our time back to enjoy books, enjoy art. That's our investment us as humans living in a world and not this weirdo thing where we have to work like 40 hours a week or on top of that your side hustle as we move towards a gig economy our time is is very precious it's being taken away from us it's not new a hundred years ago that all that stuff was happening it was working out so you know the uh, unfortunately history does repeat repeat itself with uh, different language that goes along with it that hides the, the, the theory or the functionality of the, the structure itself. That, that should be everyone's goal to really like, you know, there, there are different approaches to look at the, how to have a city, if we want to use the city as the project, have a sense of livability with it. So looking at landlordism, what does that mean to have more than one third of your wages go towards rent? or someone else's mortgage. Um, but that, I'm not really concerned about the petty landlords because that's just one person, extra thing, extra um, house. But more like corpora uh, corporations or hedge funds or BlackRock that's out there that you know is decimating communities through economy as a way to wedge out what is potentially the, the best we can be in our lives that we have with our time returned back to us. So where in this, do poets and novelists fit? I guess I'm uh, I, I'm thinking I'm thinking more about right now uh, where autocracies across the world are. What what we're seeing right now with where poets, booksellers, uh, writers, even children's book writers right now are being um, taken and imprisoned in Hong Kong. You know, we're, we're seeing something that uh, has always been there, but the first people who, when, when, when an autocracy comes into power, the first people who are um, targeted are journalists, poets, writers. So where in this transition do we fit? Poets and writers in, of, of course, the class consciousness gives the ability to see what is the difference between or what is happening with the oppression that happens there. And of, of course, it's not onto the poets specifically. Um, everyone should have it as well. 
um, this understanding of how to have a critical analysis of the world around them. Even the idea of like what we were saying was happening in Hong Kong, understand what a color revolution looks like when you have these uh, events that happen in Hong Kong. Just recently in Cuba, you had another color revolution where you know, it looked like you know, leaning into that anti-communist rhetoric of you know, they're dictators, they're you know, authoritarian, uh, this, this, this propaganda machine, this marketing machine that has well-versed, well-practiced ways of putting out information, disseminating information to say these things are happening the way it is but that's performance. We have to, within our analysis, see beyond the performance for what it is as a continual attack or a re-engagement of this imaginary that we have as a settler colonial nation, as what it means to be an imperialist nation here in the imperial core. How do we see the world around us different than what we've been you know, informed, how we see the world around us? That's the challenge right there. Like, How do you trust anything that's, that's being put out there? And so what really builds a sense of self with everyone else is a sense of, build, uh, of community. We had a really good example of what happens when we're starve-touched from other folks. What happens when the strength or the weakness of a community has been completely highlighted through a pandemic. Us as humans, as social animals, we crave to be around other people. Whether we engage or not, being in presence of other people, you know, give us a sense of purpose. And we got a really good example of that being gone and what we want returned from that. A different way of life, a different approach, a different way to engage with the world around us to live the best life we can, have the world that we want to live in, and make sure, and we can add on to that, what does seven generations look like down the way? Is this the way we have right now, or are we going to work towards something else? for the next generation and so forth down the way. We've got a huge opportunity as we, as we emerge slowly from this pandemic. Because what I thought too, I, I thought that we, we had an introspection, a time of some introspection. And for, for some people, there was no introspection because essential workers were out there all the time. But there was a whole different appreciation of what it meant to be an essential worker. And I don't see that that's, I, I, I see, what I see is that it's become internalized by people who have had extremely taxing, low paid work of all sorts. And we're seeing right now that people are just saying, no more. I want more. I understand that some people had more. This was, I want more and I don't want to do this job. And I think this is a really important time for labor, for people who were able to get back some of their lives during this time to see what it means. As you've been pointing out in several different ways that it's incredibly precious to be human. And to have, to have the emotional freedom to read poetry, to bring art into our lives, to it, it's for me. It's I suppose part of that is being able to bring the real world, the natural world, into our lives, and that happened for a lot of people too. 
They went outside. We had to be outside. They went and stayed outside. We all had our times of being together outside, outside, all of the time. And there is, there is something beautiful in that. It's still, it's still happening. You know, there's people who are still out in the snow right now, taking long walks together. Um, people who, it's, that's where we find our, our community. And yeah, I missed it a lot. I, I missed just being, I knew I, I, I keep diaries and I kept writing a list of people that I was going to hug, you know. Um, but something we, we don't, something that got, um, became invisible. It became tragic and invisible and strange was that we lost so many of our national elders, all of our old people, our, our treasures, our national elders for tribal people. This was a, an incalculable loss because we lost our first language speakers. We lost so many of our ceremonial people with ceremonial knowledge. But people with ceremonial knowledge and people with family memories disappeared all in an awful way. People vanished during these past two years. They're gone. And I think we haven't reckoned enough with what this means. I mean, people say to me all the time, I just want to forget this. I never want to talk about it again. But part of the reason that this book exists is because I didn't want to forget it. I didn't want to forget it at all. I want to remember it. And I want to take our lessons and think about it because this is always going to be there going forward. And if we don't think about it and learn from it, then we can't go forward. I think that's what's really interesting about your book is you have key spots in your book takes place in key spots there in Minneapolis where a lot of native folks come together and these different locations and also while the locations have engaged with the, the uh, Floyd rebellions there in the commentary that happens with those, what's happening in that area, specifically to the uh, native places. Um, so I think like Powwow Grounds is one of them. Migazee was mentioned. Um, and then um, I'm not sure if, uh, was it Little Earth? Is that what you have there? Or is it wide? Yeah, Little Earth. And of course, where uh, your, your, your bookstore is, you know, right there near the lake, right? So um, the historical changes of names that happened with uh, was it Lake Cahoon, that was the previous name, to White Lake afterwards in Dakota language. You know, there's this changing that's happening. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned because that's that's a way forward. I really feel like finding um, the names and then changing the names, finding the history of the names, changing the names is a way, a great way of reckoning with history, and it's happening. Um, all over in, in, in our country. And uh, so the bookstore is interesting because um, so in the city in Minneapolis, we're on Dakota ground. This is Dakota Earth. And the bookstore is in a place close to um, Cloudman's Village. And that was a patched in cornfields and it was gardened this whole this whole area around the lake right and there is a 
clear record kept. Well, there's a clear record kept on every native person, but that's a different story. Um, but the cloud man was well known and uh, an ancestor of Charles Eastman. Charles Eastman was a very famous physician and he, he took care of people after wounded knee. He um, translated Lakota names and he was just a great human being. Well, so here I was in um, San Francisco many years ago at a book event and this beautiful young person came up and said, oh, I though you know, we, we knew each other from, we knew each other's um, family from Wapaton. So it was great to, to meet somebody new, but somebody who was like well-known and to me and a family that was really close to mine and uh, a Dakota family. And so uh, it turned out that she and her sisters came to work at the bookstore. So that to me was extraordinary because they came home and their names are Carly Bean, Car Carly Badheart Bull now, and Kate Bean. Kate, it, Kate and Carly have been instrumental in renaming the places all around Minneapolis and St. Paul. Yeah, well, it's, is it really renaming or just giving back the names? Yeah, good point. Uh, we have 15 minutes for Q&A. Folks have questions. So, speaking of storytelling, there's also story listening. And I wonder if you could talk about your bookstore as a place where you hear stories from people who come to visit it. I'm trying to think. Well, I think it's very much a, a place where people listen to questions rather than stories. I mean, I hear sometimes I hear stories from customers and people there, but more often it's it's um, a place where people feel comfortable, comfortable around books, comfortable, and we're fairly comfortable people, you know, non-threatening, <laughs> nice booksellers. And so people often ask questions about um, Native people. I mean, there's, because we're there. And people are curious, and so we have, um, you know, we we have a number of books that we just give people or and try to answer their questions. Sometimes they're just questions. So, like I, I you know, I I'd, I'd really we get phone calls. I like to give my dog an Indian name. <laughs> like to give my hamster an Indian name. That kind of question, um, and then you have to kind of dial it back and say, look, that's not appropriate or you know, how do I get an Indian name? That kind of thing. There's, there's all kinds of questions that come up. And I think that most of the people there deal with those questions with a lot of for, forbearance and sell a book. <laughs> That's how it goes. Well, it makes me think people are as comfortable to ask questions as they can be with a confessional nearby on the premises. It's a, we have a confessional in the bookstore, but now it's a forgiveness booth. Um, and you just like, it, 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 it emanates forgiveness. So you just don't have to, you don't have to confess anything. You're absolved, automatic, automatically absolved. <laughs> yeah, I'm not Catholic, so I don't know what that all means. So. It's right next to the bathroom, so that's the other place I gotta meditate. Uh, we're we're kind of in this crossroads from what used to be the Minneapolis's uh, one nude beach. So 
we were there from we were we people would just come down this street and um oh god people loved the bookstore because they could kind of uh, change in the bathroom they didn't they they came in in clothes usually <laughs> let's have another question over here No, um, so I told um, my um, co-workers at the bookstore that I was writing this this book, um, and I shared it with a lot of people around, um, especially a couple of people at the bookstore who who were, were interested in reading it. I said, "Does anybody want to be in the book?" No, <laughs> and most people were like, "Oh, that's okay, no." But one person said. I want to be in there. Here's the things that are kind of are that I think are interesting about me, and they were interesting. And I'd love to see them in a character, but totally unlike me, so nobody will recognize it. So I did that. So there's somebody in there who's, but but I wanted to make sure that nobody goes up, you know, went up to the people who are working there and said, "Are you so and so in the book?" So. I I tried to make uh, I've tried every time I'm doing a talk for the book it's like don't please nobody's really in the book but there is a secret person but you won't recognize the person. Well, there is one character that's really peculiar, and I think it's the bookstore owner. I couldn't get away from that, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Camino. <laughs> uh, so that's our time. That's our time. Thank you. I, miigwech. Um, I'm so happy to have been here, and thank you, Trevino. Yeah, thank you for being uh, bilocating with us through our futuristic setup. Uh, let's have a round of applause for Louise. That was Louise Erdrich in conversation with Trevino Brings Plenty from the Portland Book Festival in 2021. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>